Hi, I'm Nylon, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City, and this is Hashtag Collaboration, a window into the unique magic that happens when artists come together around a special, singular idea. It's how masterpieces are made, a director and the extraordinary writers, designers, performers, and producers that share their vision. For more episodes, just visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series or search for The Drama League wherever you find your podcast. And don't forget to like and subscribe. The Drama League is a not-for-profit home for stage directors and the audiences who enjoy their work on stage, in films, on television, and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help directors and their families who are suffering economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, just visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you join as part of our Drama League family. Thanks for listening and now enjoy hashtag collaboration. Hi. Um, should we introduce ourselves to yeah, the let's world Drama League fans? Yes, after you. Okay, thank you, friend. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Shakina Nafak, and um, among other things, I am the playwright and star of Chonbury International Hotel and Butterfly Club that will be coming out, uh, well, on Audible sometime soon, maybe already on Audible, depending on when this airs. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, thanks to Williamstown Theater Festival and Audible for making it happen. Um, Laura? And I'm Laura Savia, and I have the privilege of being the director of Chonbori International Hotel and Butterfly Club, written by and starring Shakina Nafak, coming to your uh, earbuds soon via the collaboration between Williamstown Theater Festival and Audible. And I also am the Associate Artistic Director of Williamstown Theater Festival. So I, uh, Shakina is wearing two hats as playwright and actor, and I'm wearing two hats as director and one of the producers. Um, so we're just all up in all of yeah. this with this project. It's a four-way collaboration between it's two people. Two people. <laughs> yeah. A lot of personalities. And you know, we, we hope that the project will live and incarnate in three dimensions. Um, and maybe we should sort of start there by talking about like what was meant to be, what is meant to yeah. be. Yeah, that's is. a great story of collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I can start with like a little bit about the play and where... Yeah where how we got to start working together and then like you can tell us about the trajectory we thought we were on love that yeah okay so uh chambray international hotel and butterfly club for the listeners and watchers is a um is a great american play about trans women in thailand and it's a play uh, about my life story in a lot of ways um traveling to thailand for gender confirmation surgery and the wonderful human beings that i met when i was there and when i came home i just felt like i wanted to um, write a love letter to them. And, um, and so this play uh, began at first through the Drama League's Beatrice Terry res residency, which is for um, playwrights who direct their own work. But then when it became clear that I was going to be playing myself in the play, uh, I think everyone agreed that like three hats would maybe a little too much. Um, and so, um, so we did the drama league's like final presentation of the play uh through the residency was about 18 months after i had been awarded the residency and it was at playwrights horizons and uh you know we did the thing where we send out all the invites to everybody to come and see like who's like who likes it who's interested and uh laura came representing williamstown theater festival and i don't even know if we met beyond maybe a handshake or maybe not even that at I that moment think, I, I don't think we met at that meeting yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. So, but then months later, I got an email from Laura and she was saying, um, it's like the email that every playwright hopes to get from like a, a, an institution. It was that I can't stop thinking about your play email. And um, it was so exciting because I had been like you know, pushing this along with the support of the Drama League, but hadn't found any sort of, um, you know, support beyond that. And um, And then Laura and I started talking about uh, how, why she resonated with the play and uh, what might become of that. And you, you want to take the baton from here? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the, so, so Mandy Greenfield, the artistic director of Williamstown Theater Festival, my boss, um, has known Shikino for a long time and, and wanted very much actually to come to that Playwrights Horizons reading, but couldn't and sent me in her stead. And it was I mean, really a day that changed my life. I went to the, to the reading. I 
had a sort of out of body spiritual experience of joy and laughter and weeping while sitting in the third row in a rehearsal studio, you know, told Mandy the next day about it. And basically she encouraged me to like keep, keep an ear to the ground and like, if the moment feels right to introduce myself to Shakina, which as Shakina just said, eventually happened. Um, and, you know, th this was all, that was about three years ago now, which is yeah. wild. Um, but after a, a series of conversations, um, you know, I was able to express both my deep personal interest in the play and the, the feelings I had, the connection I felt to it as a director, and also convey the, that the institution, Williamstown Theatre Festival, had an interest in developing it and, and hopefully one day producing it. So, you know, many readings and workshops and 29 hour readings later, you know, through which Shakina and I got to know each other because we were really sort of, you know, it was like the equivalent of dating. We were sort of yeah. perfect strangers that, you know, started taking some steps together to see if there would be chemistry. But many readings later, um, and many rewrites later, the Woodstock oh, yeah. Theater Festival committed to producing the play, and it was meant to to be performed this summer, like so many other plays were meant to be performed summer 2020. And then when you know when COVID struck, um, like everyone in the American theater, we were all wondering what was going to happen. Would live theater be possible? When would it be possible? And and when the writing was on the wall that it would not be safe to gather, at, you know, for a summer festival in the Berkshires, really, uh, Mandy had, I think, a stroke of brilliance. And she just was sort of feeling like we cannot lose these seven plays that we were meant to do as a season. Like, that cannot, we cannot let this virus take these voices away. And she called up Audible, which is, you know, owned by Amazon. It's the largest producer of audiobooks in the world. They have a lot of original content as well. She called them up and said, like, would you make this should have been season for audio? Um, and they said yes. And so actually not just Chonburi, but seven projects are, are able to now be done and be realized in audio. So this doesn't mean that it's a replacement for the stage project. We, we absolutely need to see this play um, live and breathe on stage. It has Please. to incarnate. I mean, the <laughs> costumes alone um, <laughs> must happen. But hopefully the, the silver lining of having a, a really excellent audio product is that it will reach a global audience, um, you know, and frankly for a cheaper price than, than a normal theater ticket price. Um, and hopefully it will be complementary to the theatrical production. You know, maybe people listen and then they're like, I got to go see it whenever I want it. Yeah. You know, or they go watch it on stage and then they, they're like, I got to download the... I want to listen to it every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what we hope. So we just, we just wrapped a couple of weeks ago. I mean, we just came out of the... This the is our audience. first time seeing each other since we finished recording. Yeah, yeah, I miss I, you too. <laughs> I feel like I was seeing you on my computer screen all day, every day for so long. And then yeah. it went away. Not to mention the fact that we haven't seen each other in person since obviously before... March, yeah. Pandemic, yeah. February, maybe. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Audible process and how strange... And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's so, it, it was so, it's unprecedented what we yes. did, you know. Um, so aside from like the the normal um, creative process that comes from mounting a new play, which can be hair raising, um, even if you don't have hair, and like uh, all of the stress and anxiety and like manic creativity that goes in to that process, um, was sort of like brought to uncharted territory. And we knew that we were gonna be uh, recording this over um, Amazon Chime, which is like a, a, you know, a video conferencing service. And that every actor would have uh, their own recording kit sent to them at home. So we had a cast of 13, plus the director, plus um, a, a host of people from Audible on this group video call. Um, and um, and with like all the technical difficulties you can imagine that come with that, um, and we um, we decided that we were going to treat it a little bit more like um, like a television shoot or a film shoot rather than a play rehearsal, 
because um, what became clear to us was that we didn't need to worry necessarily about sustaining from the top of one scene to the end of one scene with all the technical snafus. So it was like, how can we like be, be um, like present with one another in the face of all the technical difficulties to just like work our way beat by beat through the show, sometimes out of order. In yeah. fact, um, there were major rewrites in the last uh, week leading mm-hmm. up to the show. And I didn't hear the play from top to bottom ever. Um, on the, on the, the, we had two weeks of rehearsal and on the Friday of the first week we did um, like a sort of read through of the draft as well as it could be um, done. Um, but then when we found out that um, some pivotal moments of the play would have to change because of the question of getting rights for music, um, I went back and I wrote, which is like probably the greatest rewrite of the play in the last days leading up to it. And I never really got to hear it in context. Just had to trust that we were, yeah, pitching together. I still don't know how it all works. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> yeah. was wild. I mean, the the feat of technology pulled off by Audible of shipping this state-of-the-art equipment to everybody and getting them all set up in their own homes without an engineer ever showing up in person was impressive and you know it was strange to direct something where my only window into it is a you know a video conference screen I didn't have anything in my ear letting me hear the actual feeds from the -the state-of-the-art microphones Um, it was all actually being captured into 13 separate hard drives so there's 13 separate recordings of each person's track and then our dial our editor Pat is as we speak stitching it all together and only when he turns in the first edit will we really know how it came together. But I think that even as strange as that assignment was of, you know, an audio recording of a theatrical play done virtually because of COVID, like the assignment for a director was pretty much the same, which is like, hear it in my mind's ear, the way Shakina hears it and deliver that. Mm. And like, because we had the benefit of all these readings and workshops that we've done over the years, I do believe that Shakina and I now hear the play largely the same way. That like mm-hmm. our sense of pacing, our sense of rhythm, because your 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 writing is so musical. It's so there's such a momentum to it. And I've often compared it to like a chamber orchestra because there are 13 actors who all have to ping off of each other. Um, and so I just thought like with the support of our amazing dialect coaches and, you know, the, the, the gameness of this cast to do it remotely, um, as long as we got the, the music of it, and of course the heart of it, kind of in the can, we would have it. We would make um, it work. Yeah. yeah, we can make it work and we have the benefit of post to sort of massage and, you know, our, our incredible sound designer, Joanna Fang, is now going to come in and work her magic. So cool. Yeah, it's, it's funny how the assignment is actually exactly the same as it would, you know, as it would have been, even though we took away the the visual dimension. Yeah, there's something really interesting about like the tenacity of theater making mm-hmm. that like can serve you in the face of any obstacle, really. Mm-hmm. And this was just one of those. This was like, well, yeah, we know how to make magic from you know a limited supply. Yeah, um, already you know, and so this was just like a new version of that. Yeah, Um, yeah. Something else that was really interesting about our collaboration that I think is, um, is cool to talk about is like how, how many points of view we tried to like bring into the room, you know, in order to do justice to the story and, and the, to Thailand, (laughs) you know, um, because like Laura and I are, are both white women. Um, I'm, you know, a gender nonconforming trans woman. Um, so I come with a certain amount of experience in that regard that this play is rooted in that is not Laura's experience. Um, and so there was a lot of, um, I wish I could remember who coined this term, but there's a term I love that I remember reading about in my dramatic theories class when I was like 19 at UC Santa Cruz, which is now burning. I'm so sad. Um, but, uh, but this idea of what I've come to understand is reach space, which is like the distance that separates you from the subject and the journey you have to go on to, oh. to try and connect to that. Writing and, it down. Yeah, and so like, there was so much reach space in this play because Laura was trying to sort of get in, inside my lived experience. I was trying to get inside the lived experience of this like international community of trans women and more so. 
the Thai uh, people who I met who were working in, um, you know, the, the international medical industrial complex um, and like trying to sort of create, um, you know, a charming mid-century play yeah. with the critique of like, you know, 2021 uh, anti-colonialism. And mm-hmm. so there was just a whole lot of reaching and sometimes we had to bring in other people to reach with us. Uh, and we also encouraged the actors to like bring all that as well. And I think that was a really cool element yeah. of our collaboration. I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I think we can unpack it a little bit. You know, there's certainly as a cis woman, you know, holding a lot of positional power as a director in a room, I was aware from the very first reading, you know, that I needed to educate myself. I needed to create a room that really was a brave space. And and above all, like my mission has been in, in the process, the processes to center trans stories and to center trans people. So there's, there's that whole sort of uh, reach to use the to use your word mm-hmm. and maybe we should talk about that for a minute and then also talk about through the lens of a place set in Thailand you know yeah. led by two white American women but you know just to offer that uh, I mean first of all I want to live in a world where there is just uh, you know where there are dozens of trans directors being celebrated every single day you know I, mm-hmm. I am sure this play will be directed by someone of trans experience, hopefully many times over. Um, But that is not me. And I definitely stumbled along the way. And I think that, you know, definitely thinking about allyship um, in these spaces was a privilege that I had, you know, to, to sort of try again and again to be the best possible ally, both with my producing hat on and sort of saying, okay, Williamstown Theater Festival, like how are we gonna make a really safe experience for all of our artists, but specifically for a cast who's about to come here for the 29 hour we did last year, you know, that features nine actors of trans experience. Like we, we need to think through this, but also as a director, you know, how do I run the room and keep the process moving? And as a director, you do have to be the arbiter of like which natural organic conversation bubbles on and which one you have to say like, sorry folks, we gotta get to page 50 by lunch. Yeah, and, and that was challenging. And I felt with by the time we got to the audible process, I I had just landed in a process in, in a space where I thought for the rehearsals, and there were only seven and a half rehearsals. No, yeah, seven and a half rehearsals. I thought we'll get it done. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna rush anybody's conversation. And if there is a conversation happening specifically about trans experiences, I am going to shut the hell up (laughs) until that conversation finishes. And a lot, you know, surprisingly on video conference, like as as sort of unpersonal as it could feel, a lot of incredible conversations happened. Um, Some that had directly to do with the scene work and some that didn't. But, you know, we were also holding space for one of the largest ever assembled gatherings of professional actors of trans experience, um, both in roles of characters who are trans and, and characters who are cis. Um, and I, I was proud of how we ran the, the video conference rehearsal process. Yeah. Um, and also just um, grateful to you, Shakina, because you at so many points in the process did educate me or check me or explode <laughs> my mind in, in some way. I mean, there are moments where I definitely committed microaggressions as the leader in the room and needed to own them. I hope I owned them, you know, and apologize for them learn from them and move forward, which is hard in any case, um, but it's, it's hard when you're a leader in the room. Um, yeah. But also trying to always, you know, my, my reading list, my, my documentary list just sort of <laughs> quadrupled the minute I started becoming associated with this play because I thought, I am not going to ask anyone to educate me. Um, I'm going to steep myself as much as possible in the literature, reading all of Kate Bornstein's books, you know, reading yeah. trans- these trans selves, like steeping myself in in as much work in as many mediums as possible, um, and still falling flat on my face some days. But yeah, I mean, this is this is part of what we did together, or our yeah, doing. Yeah, and and I I want to pick up also that the thing you said about the largest assembly of professional trans actors working on a project. I, you know, I think I can count the number of times I've been in a room with nine or more trans people and it would be every butterfly club rehearsal 
and my time in Thailand, you know? Um, I mean, like, aside from going to Pride and maybe, like, one or two sort of trans conferences types of things, but, like, but, like, actually engaging in a long-term process, um, you know, it's, it's truly unprecedented, and, and I think all of us felt that way, so those, those conversations that would come up, you know, starting from table work or starting from checking in, like, those are conversations that we just never get to have, you know, never, and so, so there was a kind of magic, um, Mm -hmm. and that is actually the magic of the Butterfly Club, like, what the play is about is, like, what is this beautiful thing that happens when you, when you get these women together, um, and then we sort of did that, it was kind of meta, you know, making of it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I think all of, you know, to put a, a fine point on it, you know, it's a group, a cast of 13, so you have nine actors of trans experience, a couple other people in the process, like myself, but, you know, the, there was a majority, the majority of people in the room um, were people of trans experience, and I think there's something magical that happens when, when a majority is achieved, because there, there's, there's no longer a balance to tip, it has tipped. Yeah. And, right. and that's really remarkable. And, and I know from, you know, the actors, uh, the cisgender actors in the company, you know, many of them said to me privately or said to the group, what a privilege it was to get to just be invited in and, and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But maybe, so let's talk about the Thailand. The Thai aspect. Yeah. 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 So interesting to me because like from the moment I was there, I was aware of the inequities and the and and I have studied academically uh, the impact of tourism on local populations, and so I understood my position uh, as a medical tourist. And um, and then when I was working on my solo show Manifest Pussy, I was telling the stories about being there in Thailand as a as a white American trans woman, and I became really aware of like the fine line I had to discover for myself between, you know what is great dramatic storytelling that prompts critical questions and what is a TED talk? Mm -hmm. And so it became like, you know, from the jump with this play, like there shall be no TED talks, you know, we have to keep everything dramatically interesting and we can be as critical as we want to be, but it has to come out of the characters and has to come out of the conflict. Um, And and the action. Yeah. 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 So, so um, one thing that, uh, you know, when I had first started working on the play before I began a partnership with Williamstown, I was working with Natasha Sinha as a dramaturg, and she's a dear friend of mine um, and a brilliant uh, artist, um, one of the founders of the Beehive Dramaturgy Studio, uh, the, um, I don't know if her title off the top of my head, but something like the Artistic Producer of Signature Theater Center. Um, and uh, she's just been doing the work a long time as a Southeast Asian woman in American theater, um, really at the top of her game. And um, and so, so for a while, in the early stages of the play, um, you know, Natasha was like my sounding board around Orientalism, which is that sort of like um, glossy veneer by which like colonizers glance at the Far East, you know? Um, and uh, and so I really wanted to be aware of like how like going to Thailand to get a vagina relies on colonialism and Orientalism. Like there is a sort of magical mystique of like come to Thailand for your surgery, you know? And I wanted to like sort of honor that um, and then also always be like holding up a magnifying glass to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'll just say that's sort of a theoretical framework uh, for me is um, is this idea of like ecstasy and suspicion that you can sort of enjoy the art and the art making process and like thrive on that. And you can also be critical of the making, you know, at the same time, these things can coexist. So, um, so when we started working on the play together, um, one of the things that I was like asking for from the very beginning of Williamstown was like, we need to have an Asian American person in the room with us who, um, who is speaking to concerns, the way that I can speak to the trans concerns, mm-hmm. um, who is someone that for the cast and for, and for me to, to be um, not only a resource, but also um, like a representative who was being compensated for their time yep. to like, adequately uh, ensure um, that the representation uh, in the play was being done, uh, you know, with, a, with an eye toward that, uh, 
forward critique and not that um, sort of backward orientalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so Laura had to, um, to work really hard to make that happen. Yeah. It's interesting that the, I mean, we like, spoiler alert, it's a very happy ending in this case because a wonderful, wonderful artist named Ryu Rakulchan was our cultural competence consultant. And uh, Ryu, you know, is a native of Thailand and is a Yale trained set designer and has been to Williamstown Theater Festival and definitely, you know, he and I share an ethos um, and has just been and continues even in the post process to be uh, a true um, a true leader and a true resource as the play continues to reveal itself to us um, in so, so many ways, to the cast, to Shakina, to me. But getting there was bumpy. And, you know, one of the, the pieces of this collaboration, like we were just talking about at the beginning, is like, I'm wearing the hat of producer and I'm wearing the hat of director. Um, and, you know, there's also, I think the, the industry is waking up to the need for people to hold positional power in a rehearsal room who aren't the director or the playwright in a case like ours. And the industry has not figured out what that is. You know, yeah. I think that this is going to be, th this is a new frontier. Uh, and it, it frankly shouldn't have to be so hard. I mean, Shakina, you brought it up so many times and it wasn't until probably the 10th or 11th discussion that we, we Williamstown Theater Festival and Audible were able to really um, confirm. We were able to engage for you professionally, you know, with compensation yeah. in all the, the ways that make it a healthy collaboration and make it real and not just yeah. um, something you're doing for optics, which is right. worse than doing nothing at all. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there, and, and maybe this is, a good way to to start to talk about the different hats we wear and and the nuances of that aspect of our unique collaboration but you know there are i think as a director who is also part of the artistic leadership that's charged with keeping a theater company fiscally mm -hmm. you know sound and in business yeah. there are sometimes tensions of like i want the world i want to hire this person and that person and this and this and this and at the same time my very job description you know, reminds me that, uh, you know, that there are pressures bearing down on any production, even the one right. I'm directing. And yeah. I have to, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I, I definitely think I should have gotten more clarity in my own mind of what we really needed sooner in terms of that partner. Mm. Um, and I'm very happy that everything came together but I just am sort of, I don't really, I'm not building to a thought. I'm just sort of owning that. I think for our industry and I think for people who, are, who do have some power within organizations, um, we are going to have to really wake up to the fact that when someone, an artist says, you know, we need to have someone in the room with power because of X, um, in the spirit of, you know, nothing about us without us, Right. We got to take that seriously. We've got to action it. And we've yeah. got to have line items in the budget. Um, in the same way that I think, you know, with with intimacy work, our industry mm -hmm. is finally building that work into budgets. The same has to happen here. Um, yeah. But cultural competence consultant was ultra, ultimately the title for you. We also made sure that we had um, we had two dialect coaches, one dialect yeah. coach who's really expert in Asian accent and dialect work, and one who's really expert in many, many accents, including British and Australian, um, which feature prominently in this play. And I think our cast felt very supported. Um, but, you know, it is that tricky thing of you, you wrote this mid-century hotel comedy with all the trappings of your grandma's hotel comedy, you know, like yeah. George S. Kaufman. And, and, and the cast of characters is going to include a bellhop and a nurse. And, you know, yeah. the characters who are visiting from, you know, largely Western countries are the characters who have more wealth and privilege in just the structure of the play. And so yeah. letting that be true and be an homage to those mid-century hotel comedies that, I mean, we both love, but also being critical of that, that very formula 
um, and trying to lay bare more and more the experience of the Thai characters, be they bellhop or mm -hmm. anyone else, uh, I think was really the work of your rewrites. I mean, from, from three years ago to now, it's like every single rewrite, there has been more and more care given and access given to the interior lives of those characters. And also in your most recent rewrite, you know, really letting the political backdrop of what was happening in 2014, which is the year mm -hmm. our play is set in, um, letting that right into the, into the story and not, not letting the characters so off the hook as being yeah. in a bubble. But actually, they're not in a bubble. They're guests in a country that's experiencing a coup. Um, yeah. And I just want to, like, applaud you. Because those last few rewrites, I think, really grounded, ground us in the where and the why um, mm. in a way that previous drafts uh, had not. Thank you for that. I also think it's, it's like puts us more in the tradition as well. Um, mm. You know, like thinking about My Fair Lady, you know, for example, yeah. and just like the, the fragile, you know, white woman in, in the royal court at a time of upheaval, you know, mm -hmm. and like just, um, yeah, I, I was really happy with the, with the rewrites. Um, we should talk about like the rewrite that happened in the end. Yeah. Um, and because I think like, you know, a couple things that I, I think that we learn as directors and Laura and I are both drama league directors, you know, is yeah. that like the best idea often um, isn't yours or isn't one that you thought would come up and then you just have to know how to see it and grab it and run with it. Yeah. And that, um, at any given moment, the rug can be pulled out from underneath you. And you have to be ready to step with clear new action, you know? Um, and, um, and so both of those things really um, came true, you know, in the last week of the recording process, it, really the weekend before we started recording. Yeah. We found out that we might not be able to get the rights for a couple songs that I was using the lyrics of, um, and with well, a melody of one the melody one Yeah, we were gonna sing one of the songs in like a karaoke style version, but the two songs that were going to like really anchor the journey of Kina, the protagonist, and Gamon, the bellhop, and the whole ensemble because they were pivotal um, moments. Um, and so um, Audible had said like, you know, we, we think you might want to write like a plan B scene in case we can't get the rights so that we have something else and you have more agency. And these kind of things happen, right? If the rights mm -hmm. couldn't get secured, they would have to either edit out the song or just like make a, make a, like an unglamorous cut, you know? And so the invitation was made to like, let me be in control of the way things sh like shook out by having a plan B. And then I said like, to Laura and the team, I was like, I don't believe in plan Bs. Like, I'm not going to publish a version of my play that has an alternate um, dramatic structure that I'm less happy with. So yep. the only solution is to go away this weekend and write something better than what I thought was the finished product. And and these were anger points that have been in the play for three years, like from the beginning. More than, I mean. Yeah, like yeah. Or, origin story. Yeah. Like how pivotal these two moments are in the play, yeah. yeah. And so I was really like distressed and, and then I, but I just trusted because I had been here before. We've all been here before, you know, that like, mm, I'm going to find a way that things are going to fall into place. Got to like flip the switch and let the downloads start happening. And what was so exciting was that um, originally we had been using some like American pop culture, uh, pop songs as sort of that, that have a kind of international, like, they, they hold space in the collective imaginary in like a mega way because they're way to Houston songs. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then what happened was in this new challenge to like come up with a, a better solution for those dramatic moments, um, I was like led into, so, into more specificities about Thailand, about queer Thai culture, about the Thai collective imaginary. Um, that, you know, had I not been sort of like cajoled into solving, it wouldn't have, it would, this, the, the, like the, some of the most glorious stuff in the play wouldn't have gotten there. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that was the coolest about, about it was like when I presented the new draft to Laura and Ryu, uh, who were the first two people I sent it to, Ryu just wrote back like, 
this feels really authentic and appropriate and right to me. Yeah. And, and that was just like, fuck yes. You yeah. know, like, because you, sometimes you take like a wild swing and you don't know if you're going to hit it or not. So, but I feel like we hit it. I can't yeah, wait for y'all to hear you it. it. You hit it. And I, yeah, I mean, it was funny because when you were finishing up, you, t yeah, I hadn't read, you hadn't said it yet, but you texted like, like soon you're not even going to, you're, you're not even going to like remember that we used to have two Whitney, Whitney Houston songs in this play, or you're going to think it was so funny that that's what we had when you see like what this is, because it was as it was meant to be. I mean, it was, it was a, a factor that came at us out of our control, but, but led us to the way it was ultimately meant to be. And I think we and the cast are, are gonna feel so proud of those sections of the play when they you know, hit the airwaves because they are exquisite and, and authentic. Um, yeah. And do you remember how this, the, there's like a, a sort of pivotal um, short monologue that Kina has, um, you know, at like the, the peak of the show. And, um, and I told Laura like, I'm going to be rewriting this monologue to opening night. So oh. just get ready. Like, I'm never, I don't know what it's supposed to be. I always feel like it's wrong. I'm going to be rewriting to opening night. And, um, and then that monologue didn't even find its core until we had made these other changes. Yes. And then, yeah. and then it was like, Oh, well, this is just like, this is the culmination of all the, yes. that stuff, but we didn't know it until <laughs> we got, got there. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and quite truly the rewrite came on the day we laid it down. Absolutely. Oh, you know? absolutely. we had to sort of eke out a moment to even run the new lines. Um, because, you know, we had to sort of borrow time from another session. Yeah. yeah. You know, every play I've ever directed, and I do mostly new plays, there is that one pivotal monologue, and it's never done until like the third preview, but you're the first writer I've ever worked with who just owned it from the start. You're like, <laughs> yeah, I know that this is that, and I'll yeah. get it. And even because you're acting in the role, you would even sometimes say, you would sort of just own while acting it, like, more will be here, something <laughs> yeah, will yeah, yeah. be here, and then finish the lines, finish the lines. And I just think, that, you know, that never worried me for a second, because it's like, yes, of course, there's always, you know, there's always something about the play that's going to reveal itself to you at the last minute. And frankly, plays that are so straightforward where that isn't the case don't really interest me. Like, I always- Right, it's like, well, what's at stake here? <laughs> and like, with a lot of, um, you know, with a really rich texture because you, otherwise, what's the fun? Um, yeah. Should we talk a little bit more about like the, the nitty gritty of, you know, especially when you're working with a, a playwright who's also the actor, um, mm. that I've done a lot. You know, I've, dir I've directed a lot of solo plays yeah. I work a lot with Ryan Haddad on his. Hey, story. Ryan Haddad. Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Um, and, and other folks as well. It's like, it's a medium I really love. I sometimes feel like I only want to direct plays that have either one person or 13 plus. Or like 7,000, yeah. Yeah, like the biggest play I ever directed had 116. Um, and then I do a lot of solo <laughs> work. But yeah, I mean, what, what, let's see. What is there to say about, we, you yeah. know, yeah, there's, we, we had different actors come in and read the role for you to hear sometimes during- That was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we didn't want to do that. Um, and we, we had to be, I think, overly communicative with each other about, you know, which hat you were wearing at which moment. Sometimes I got very protective of your time as an actor mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. not wanting cast members to ask you questions as yeah. actor, because you needed to actually focus on delivering the guts right. of the as an actor but yeah there's so I mean there's yeah. So yeah also like knowing how to like my process as a writer uh is has like I've said to you before it's like a lot of overwriting. like when I know mm -hmm. I just have to like put it all on the page you know and I'm and I'm aware that like okay the beat is repeated um the action is a little unclear but like the content that I need to get from A to B is somewhere in this like pot of right. soup I just spilled on the table. And, um, and then a lot of our process was like, okay, I would bring in this overwritten thing and then we would have to like isolate, isolate, isolate down to like, what is the core of the, of the scene, you know, and, and get rid of the, the fat and filler. And we couldn't really do that until I was able to act my way through it you know, mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, well, I think I need, I think my character needs this part. I need to be able to say these words. And then you would say like, oh, well, what if, what if she said that earlier in this scene or, mm -hmm. or in this other scene or, you know, so we were sort of like finding out where everything had to be. And, um, 
you know, I, I think I, I mentioned to you early on when we decided to move forward together that I was like, I will let you know when I'm precious about things. Mostly I'm not too precious, mm -hmm. but then there are certain things that I'm like, oh no, this really just has to be, I don't know, I can't even explain it. It just has Absolutely. to be. Yeah. And the shifting gears between like, when am I a writer trying to solve a problem? And when am I an actor trying to solve a problem? Because yes. both of them are sort of like active problem solving. Um, yeah, it was really fun. And, and it wasn't like, even though we tried to say like, oh, for this reading, just be an actor. Or then I would whip out my pencil and be sketching yeah. things like during the, during the scene. Yeah. So it wasn't anything that we could actually distinctly separate ever. I don't think we had the ability, you know, because even in the yeah. last final moments, I was the playwright acting, you know? Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, but it also didn't feel, it didn't to me feel like like we compromised in that you know like I, I i i always sort of felt like because if ever i needed to focus more directly on one of those two things i knew that like you had the other thing right. you know like okay you're gonna give me the acting notes i'm not gonna worry about figuring this out right now i'm just yeah. gonna like read through it and know that it's a shitty performance and then laura will give me some ideas of like how to find my way or i'm gonna act the shit out of this overwritten monologue mm -hmm. and then we're gonna talk later about where the key sentences are to rescue you know something yeah like that. yeah it, it worked i mean it, we there was no need for a hard boundary because a hard boundary would have been impossible anyway and mm -hmm. but there were hard boundaries aren't very trans exactly exactly and you know it was like for me the ability to work with with someone with you who who it was more like, you know, there's, it, there are two tools at all times. There's always, you know, we can always go in there with acting or we can go in there with writing or we can go in there with both if a moment isn't fully working yet. And, and flip-flopping between the two, I found useful and not challenging. Um, mm -hmm. But I think like for, you know, as a playwright, thinking of our relationship with me as director and you as playwright, I remember one of the earliest moments I thought, okay, I think this is working, you know, was one one early reading and, and you were doing some rewrites kind of in the moment and you were like this is such a tiny moment but like you were suggesting a little cut and normally I like love a cut because I want to keep it moving 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 but it was just something that I was like no you can't cut that you know like the, this happens yeah. a lot now but the first time I sort of said like no that's are you crazy that that that's a gem you know and, uh -huh. and I was standing up for one of your line i think that's a, an important moment in in any director playwright relationship where you know there are times where either one of you is going to be too snip snippy or, or yeah. precious on the other end of the spectrum and being right. able to sort of being able to trust that like look it's not you're right and i'm wrong or vice versa the play is teaching us what it wants to that's be right. that's something michael mayer taught me you know the musical or the play is out there a couple miles ahead of you both and mm -hmm. it's going to teach you what it wants to be. And it's your job just to listen, whatever hat you're wearing, and just keep up with it and, and yeah. fight it. And so if the play's teaching you that it needs that line, you better not cut that line. Can I tell you something funny? My interview for the Drum League Directors Project in 2011 mm -hmm. came after my observership with Michael Mayer on, on a clear day you can see forever uh, through the SDC. And I was right in- I stopped assisting him. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the um in the interview for the Drum League Directors Project and uh they asked me what was the most interesting thing I learned from uh being on Clear Day. And I said that being in the room and hearing the way that Michael and the team talked about every decision as though it were the mystery that they were trying to solve on behalf of the of the piece mm -hmm. and the it the like what does it want to be rather mm -hmm. than what do i want it to be mm -hmm. and when i when i shared that as like what the thing that i took away the most from that experience was just like learning how to talk about the play as its own entity and sort of taking the ego out of the equation i saw like all the heads around the table bob and i was like i got this fellowship Yes. yes. <laughs> so that's cool that we have, you know, from a similar mentor, a similar lesson. From the I same know. mentor, a similar and, and lesson. And yeah, and, and that was right around the time I did the Drama League Fellow in 2008. And that was just on the heels, I think, of, of working with Michael. Because I, I used to work at Atlantic Theatre Company. And I had the privilege in my job of being around and being a part of some processes of his. And 
that that was a really formative time, both between you know being mentored by him and and just the mentorship of Drama League, like really gave me the courage to be like, I could do this. This is this is this is a platform. This is a, this is a place where I know how to show up. Um, mm. Maybe for good. Maybe someone will even pay me <laughs> someday. Maybe I can make this work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that was actually a really serious conversation at the top of our process together. Because yeah. I came into a meeting with you and Mandy feeling like I'm an unknown entity as mm-hmm. a playwright and and ultimately as a theater actor, you know. I I have some TV credits and we'll have more, you know, to share soon, but but Broadway doesn't give a shit about me yet, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately. And so I had this idea that like in order for this play to be successful commercially at the level that I hope that it achieves that I might need to work with an established director who could like kind of pull me up because I'm Broadway and yeah and of course and that's like how we're always sort of taught to think you know it's kind of like a scarcity mindset in a way or like a poverty mindset in a way like not good enough need someone better to lift me up Mm -hmm. and um and you sat across from me on the couch in Mandy's office um, and you were just like, I can do this. You know, I feel like I am called to this play and ready to stand up and take it as far as humanly possible. And, and then of course, Mandy was like weeping and like, you know, advocating for you and just so moved by the, the expression of honesty and trust yeah. and, yeah. you know, and, and, and leaving that meeting to, to say, literally and this is just so crazy to say to a potential collaborator like I don't know if I have full confidence in your abilities because we haven't even started yet that's right and and like that's a scary thing to say to someone because it's like potentially hurtful and it's like we know that we're still in the process of building trust yeah and um but it was a pivotal it was a pivotal moment because it was a moment when you know I said like I'm not sure and you said I am yeah I I, I'm so We've actually never processed this moment together, but uh, yeah. I, you know it was pivotal, and it was. I mean, it's the wild thing about being a director, right? Is that like it? You know, you hadn't. I directed many productions. You didn't happen to have seen any of them because they, <laughs> yeah. they ran for three weeks here or six weeks there, like they do, yeah. you know. And and so there's just no way sitting on that couch that you could have seen the work I've directed. You can't. You can't rewind and and send people back to see your work. At least your work. I could read, you know, and I, I got to go see uh, Manifest Pussy, but which I love. But it's always hard as a director to basically convince someone that you're you're good, you know. Yeah. No, no amount of twenty-nine hour readings or or one-day readings is going to convey how you run a design process, how you how you shepherd a project through a rehearsal process. And so the amount of trust we needed to get to quickly, relatively quickly, I think is, 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 was immense. And I do, I do thank you for your honesty in that moment because that was a hard conversation, but being able to build a foundation of, and, and having the opportunity to respond and, and kind of speak from my very soul of like why I know I'm put on the planet to have something to do with this play. Um, I think that did become a cornerstone for us. You know, I, I don't think it'll be getting easier for directors anytime soon to, to have that kind of chicken and egg problem of like, you know, I want to, I want to do the work, but nobody's seen my work, but nobody can yeah. see my work until I do the work. Um, but we, I think with real honesty, found our way to as much trust as we could possibly have, mm-hmm. um, for, for, for a new couple, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think there's something about like the lesson in, for, for like, you, you know, early career directors who might be watching this video, yeah. like the conviction to say, I am the person for this play, you know, and to be able to go to bat for yourself yeah. And, you know, and because that's like, you don't really learn that in any other class. Do you know what I mean? Like that is the, mo- and that's not, it's different from your elevator pitch about who you are as a director. Yeah. It's literally like why no one else can do justice and service to this play the way you can. Yeah. And um, yeah, we should all be prepared to speak from that place yeah. about the work that we're passionate about doing, you yeah. know? And 
um, yeah, that was a cool, yeah, and, and that's not the case for every play, you know. I mean, certainly, yeah, sometimes you don't have to do that. Sometimes you, well, no, I mean, some, some plays you're not connected on that deep of a level, sure. you know, and you sure. have to be honest about that too. There are plays yeah. I've done for other reasons besides sort of cosmic alignment. Um, but when you have that, when you have that, and it comes around so rarely, like to be able to to own that, I, I think is is good. This play has changed my life from the moment I heard the first reading that I that I witnessed at Playwrights Horizons to all the work we got to do on it in the past three years to being um, a place to put my humanity during a global pandemic and national revolution. Um, not to mention my deepened allyship with trans communities and my friendship with you. I mean, it has really changed my life. It taught me things about my own humanity as someone who has convalesced from many surgeries, um, which is something that, that brought us sort of into the mm -hmm. conversation early on. Um, but far more importantly, it's given me access to parts of the human experience that um, that I didn't have the privilege to see beforehand. And so my belief is that it will change many other people's lives, that mm. everyone who downloads it from audible.com will be changed by it. Um, yeah, I hope so. You know, a, a young person of trans experience who needs this story right now in their life, or whether it's someone who hasn't had access to any piece of the trans, of trans experiences who equally needs this story in their life, um, like I did. Um, so thank you for writing it and thank you for including me in it. It's been so far uh, a life-changing ride. Yeah. Well, thank you for chasing it down and like <laughs> getting it made, you know, that's the thing that like every playwright or actor or both, you know, we were always like, well, we can keep working on this in vain, but until someone else comes along and is like, I shall lead this charge or at least walk alongside you and take care of the admin, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I feel really blessed by our collaboration. Um, really grateful to Audible, really grateful to Williamstown Theater Festival and Mandy Greenfield um, and Playwrights Horizons. And of course, to the Drama League, um, whose flag I shall wave forever. So um, thanks to the listeners. Uh, please continue to support the Drama League and um, support directors of American theater, even when we're not directing theater in America. Um, yeah, it's been yeah. a real joy to connect with you and process this in front of a, an audience. Such a joy. Everybody can get the play when it comes. We don't have a release date yet, but it, it's expected to be released this fall, fall of 2020. For more information, you can go to WTFestival.org or go to Audible um, on your phone, your iPad, your computer. Um, and really thanks to Audible, to, to our producers, Kate Navin and Jessica Amato, um, and to Williamstown. Really two, two organizations that came together to make something in, in a time of darkness. Um, so check it out as soon as it becomes available. Yay. Yay.